It's the Super Bowl for the environment. COP26, the world's climate change summit, just wrapped up in Scotland. Almost 200 countries were in attendance for the two weeks, along with thousands of demonstrators. Canada's made some bold pledges during the event, and will they make a difference? Hello and welcome to Unpublished TV. I'm Ed Hand. A lot of words were thrown around, but will they lead to any concrete solutions to rising sea levels and rising emissions? Some of Canada's promises were made by the Liberals during the last election campaign, and it seems Canadians are behind them, according to the latest Leger numbers, which show almost 7 in 10 Canadians support the reduction in oil and gas sector emissions to net zero by 2050. There's also strong support for other Canadian promises at COP26. Our unpublished.vote question asks, will Canada achieve its climate climate change pledges made at COP26. 2.5% said yes, 90.9% said no, and 6.6% were unsure. However you're watching and listening to our show, whether through our social media channels on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, or our podcast channels, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more, I'd like to remind you, you can still cast your vote on this topic and then email your MP to tell them why. Joining us to discuss COP26 and Canada's commitments, I'm pleased to be joined by Carl Nirenberg. He's the Parliament Hill reporter with Rabble. Dr. Thomas Gunton, professor and founding director of the Resource and Environmental Planning Program at Simon Fraser University. Dan McTagg is the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, and Eddie Perez is the International Climate Diplomacy Manager at Climate Action Network Canada. And uh, Eddie, we'll start with you. You're in Glasgow, so you were there for for the two weeks, uh, what was the mood uh, when everything wrapped up yesterday? Yeah, I mean, I think yesterday what you saw was um, the the what we call the last minute huddles, which is a grouping of uh, leaders from the different countries trying to really um, agree if if the deal is something that they could uh, then accept from the presidency. And so you had three big different huddles. On one side, you have one that was uh, organized by the U.S. Secretary um, John Kerry, the envoy on climate change, sorry, and uh, with African countries on Article 6. Then you also had vulnerable countries meeting together um, to discuss about uh, the deal when it comes to the loss and damage pieces and the climate finance pieces. And then you also had another one with the European Union uh, and their ministers coming together to analyze and unpack what was possible to get out of this deal. So it was a very tense moment. And at the same time, protests outside of the rooms and outside of the venue, because there were really big concerns about those countries uh, like the United States and EU countries trying to block progress on loss and damage. Uh, Tom, it seemed the the biggest announcement from Canada made earlier in the week from uh, the prime minister was reducing carbon emissions from oil and gas to reach net zero by 2050. How do you do it without devastating provincial economies? Well, yeah, that commitment was made. It's not clear exactly what the commitment is. It was a commitment to cap emissions. Uh, The industry itself, of course, a number of the majors have adopted net zero as their goal. Um, So really, it is a longer term strategy, partly driven by the demand side, that demand for oil is going to be going down as there's a shift to uh, Zed vehicles. Uh, And so the external market forces are are really not in favor of oil and gas going forward. And so from Alberta and Saskatchewan's perspective, the question then is, you've got an industry with declining demand, 
what do you do? Well, we did that in, in forestry in British Columbia, for example, a huge reduction in, uh, in, in employment in forestry. And what's required is a is a, a transition strategy to look for alternative areas for growth and to assist workers uh, in industries in that transition. A number of the major oil companies are doing it internationally, BP, Shell, uh, and uh, the Canadian industry has, has got to follow suit. Um, the one thing you don't want to do is you don't want to use scarce capital dollars propping up a declining industry by providing massive subsidies. And we're certainly doing that right now, uh, some $25 billion in financial support for the oil and gas sector. You're better off taking that funding and using that to help restructure those economies, look for opportunities in lithium, hydrogen, and other areas where growth is going to occur as opposed to trying to prop up a declining sector. So you need a what we call a just transition uh, rational transition, but we will never meet our targets uh, if, if we don't uh, reduce uh, production in the oil and gas sector and the International Energy Agency. Every forecaster is telling us demand for oil and gas is going down significantly. We've got to recognize that and work with that. Uh, Dan, uh, on the other side of the coin, though, how do you transition from fossil fuel investment to renewable in investments? Well, I think you have to look at the renewables that work and those that don't. Um, the ones that don't, uh, well, just look at the UK today. Wind, uh, when it's not blowing, uh, is not very effective. Solar, when there's not enough sun. But we do have experience in this country with various other forms of renewable energy. and We've done very well at it. And it's not something new. Um, you think, for instance, of hydroelectric for the province of Ontario, Quebec, Newfoundland, Manitoba, British Columbia. And, of course, uh, my favorite, nuclear which uh, I know isn't something that a lot of people want to discuss. It tends to be the, you know, the elephant in the room, uh, but it's the one certainly that provides clean, abundant, reliable forms of energy. Building it may be very expensive. Uh, as to the issue of, uh, you know, fossil fuels uh, themselves and hydrocarbons, they're ubiquitous. And if anything, if I'm looking at BP statistical information just last week, we're back to where we were pre-pandemic in terms of consumption, and there isn't likely to be a leveling off at least for the next ten to fifteen years. As I like to say, you can't build a you can't build an EV being from the old uh, auto manufacturing sector without plastics, without uh, lithium, without cobalt. All these things need to be extracted and are normally extracted through fossil fuels, and they run on rubber tires and they run on asphalt. So, uh, you know, the idea that somehow you can wish these things away uh, and hope that they go away. I think is uh, perhaps a little uh, is is a little excessive. More importantly, the world wants more of Canada's clean energy as opposed to the narrative that suggests that it doesn't. The only problem we have, of course, in this country is getting our product to market and uh, uh, the many organizations that are devoted to making sure that doesn't happen. We don't see that, by the way, in many other nations, those that uh, tended to have a real problem at uh, COP26 with the proposals as a whole. Uh, you mentioned nuclear being clean energy. I don't think you can really consider it clean if you can't dispose of the waste, though, right? Well, I lived in Pickering for, what, uh, 19 years. You've got uh, encased nuclear uh, spent rods uh, sitting on the docks in front of the nuclear reactor there since 1970. Uh, I would think that uh, given its emissions, given its, uh, its effectiveness, uh, uh, the idea of new technologies around SMR is being able to create smaller uh, uh, utilities uh, backing up as opposed to trying to find batteries to back up in colder weather, as opposed to using uh, our friends around the world uh, in, you know, in, in regions of the country that do not observe any environmental standards as Canada does. 
to extract the minerals uh, required to build uh, other forms of renewables to me suggests that there is uh, obviously some inconsistency. But I think the fact is we've done very well in Ontario with our nuclear energy. It's only when we start to mix it in with natural, uh, sorry, with renewables uh, like uh, wind and solar that we suddenly wind up with problems. Again, that's a whole debate for another time. But I think the reality is that for most, nuclear has been extraordinarily uh, good. And there was a point during the negotiations, I'll let Eddie perhaps talk to that. Uh, I wasn't there directly, but about a week ago, uh, where in fact uh, natural gas and nuclear were seen as uh, as clean and uh, potential breakthroughs uh, for other countries to adopt in order to get to the next level. Uh, Carl, uh, also coming out of the uh, COP26, a global price for carbon, or at least we're discussing that. Can anyone, can everyone agree on that? Or do you think, it, you know, with all these promises we've seen before and they don't get fulfilled, is it really going to happen? It's very difficult because you have players like Russia and Saudi Arabia that, you know, from what I know about it, are going to uh, want to go, uh, march to their own drummer. Now, I mean, Saudi Arabia is part of OPEC, uh, and OPEC, it's as as a, as a group of, uh, of petroleum producers, are going to have all kinds of reasons and considerations for the kind of prices they're going to want to set that aren't necessarily geared toward dampening consumption or controlling consumption. So it's, uh, it's hard to imagine that um, price, it's hard to imagine in a way that a price on carbon or a tax on carbon or all these other market-based mechanisms alone can achieve what we want to achieve. And you have to have much more of a holistic plan that includes, say, in countries like Canada, uh, the design of our, of our of our living environments uh, to minimize um, minimize travel and transportation by private vehicle and maximize uh, bicycle, pedestrian, and public transit. And you know, there's a whole other series of stages. Uh, the kind of construction that we do for our our homes. Transportation isn't the only way in which we uh, produce uh, greenhouse gas emissions, and, and far from it. But the, 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 the problem is that the, uh, uh, the uh, petroleum producing countries uh, are a funny and, 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 and complicated mixed bag. And it's hard to imagine that you're going to get them to be, to all focus exclusively on setting a price in such a way that it would limit the consumption of the product, which is their main source of wealth. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Eddie, coal. Uh, a lot of rhetoric, a lot of talk about the uh, the final wording coming out of uh, Glasgow. Does does the agreement really have the teeth to do the job? And does it even matter when the U.S., China, and India, which use seventy percent of the coal, um, are not signed on? I mean, I think the the coal discussion on the feasibility of the phase out of coal is not necessarily related to the agreement. Um, in 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 the UN text, the the UN text, what it does is actually uh, delivers on something that we have not been able to do for the past thirty years, which was talk about the elephant in the room. The UN has actually never talked about fossil fuels in their in their COP text. So it is a huge deal to get two hundred countries to agree on the importance of phasing out uh, coal. Now, when, they come, when it comes to the debate that you mentioned, I think there are two key relevant things. The first one is um, that 
phasing out call will happen outside of the COP venue. It happens already through the different initiatives, such as the one uh, with the Power and Pasco Alliance. And in the context of India, you know, I, I, I do see many headlines blaming India for the, uh, the weak outcome of COP26. No, I think we have to blame the real uh, problems here. India per capita is one of the lowest users of coal, but they also use coal for 70% of their energy generation. And so uh, the, the big problem remains in the context of the whole fossil fuel package, the United States and Canada, uh, who are the biggest contributors uh, to, to fossil fuel subsidies and remain uh, those who have done the lowest uh, to, to phase out out of coal and on fossil fuels. And in this case, I feel that, uh, you know, uh, what we need to look at uh, in this context is what, what India committed to it when, it, when it comes to uh, 2030 targets. They have one of the most uh, incredible renewable energy targets, but they will only be able to transition if there is financing available for uh, that transition to happen. And we saw a couple of deals at COP26, for example, for South Africa to do a transition rapidly that in, in as, as Tom said earlier, a managed decline and a just transition, that only happens if there are resources available for these countries to do so. And Tom, you know, I, I think when I, when I talk about the coal, and I, I found it interesting, the, I, I think it was the economic minister for India was saying, a developing nation is entitled to use fossil fuels responsibly. And, and do you agree with that? Well, yeah, yeah, yes, yes and no. <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the, the poor countries certainly have a point that most of the carbon budget has been taken up by wealthy countries and uh, they have a valid case to say, well, you, you created most of this mess uh, by using up the carbon budget. And now you're trying to come along and, and, and uh, uh, prevent us from, from developing. The other side though, is that uh, the renewables and other, other forms of energy are certainly a lot more economic than some of the coal expansions and, and or continuation of existing coal even that's going on. So, so the, the, these countries are able to leapfrog uh, if they provide, as, as Ed, Eddie says, if, they, if we provide them with that financial support and technological help, they can leapfrog the, the, the carbon era and go into uh, lower cost uh, sources of energy, which is actually gonna make them better off over the long run and of course save, save the world. I just come back to a point also Dan raised on, on, on oil. Um, Dan mentioned the BP report coming out and saying, well, oil consumption is back to what it was. Well, you know, that, that, that's true, it's going back, but, the, but it's that short term perspective, which we gotta get away from. You've got to look at the longer term. And if you look at the International Energy Agency, if you look at BP's forecast, uh, there is no question that we're going to see a significant decline in the demand for fossil fuels, particularly oil. Like IEA is forecasting a 50% decline. Um, the car industries are adopting ZEV mandates themselves, and, and some are going to 100% ZEV by 2035. So there's a huge shift away from oil. Uh, and and we, we can ignore that. If you ignore that, you ignore it at your peril. Uh, you've got to recognize where the markets are going and you've got to work with that. And, and uh, as Eddie's saying, you know, we've got to think about having a just transition 
and looking at other growth opportunities. And the worst thing we could do, and we're doing it right now to some degree, is pumping scarce capital back into sectors where the demand is declining. That's a recipe for long-term economic decline. You've got to move those resources into growth areas, uh, whether it be lithium, uh, hydrogen, renewables, as the, as the oil companies themselves are doing, the, and the International Energy Agency said, the only oil companies that are going to survive are the ones like Shell and BP, which actually undertake this transition to reinvent their companies to look at the, whether the growth sectors are going and it's into clean energy uh, and other kinds of activities and away from the declining demand for oil. Uh, what do you think, Dan? Um, you know, you, you, you talk about the, the short term that Tom brings up about getting back to the levels pre-pandemic, but when you look long term, uh, is is the demand there? Do you th- agree the demand is going to be there or no? Yeah, I think you'll see, and Tom will probably agree that uh, after I made the statement about this coming back to normal, uh, that eventually we would see these things. I think the time frame is a little different and uh, different simply because I think most want, there's a difference between reality and I think aspirational. Uh, the IEA, for instance, last May was saying we should stop making, you know, producing no more production of fossil fuels. Only two, three weeks later, uh, its director, executive director, Fatty Viral, coming on bended knee saying the world needs to produce more. Uh, look, I think we have to recognize that uh, what we saw during the pandemic in terms of the demand drop is not and does not constitute in, in many respects what we're going to see for the foreseeable future. I think the best case scenario is that we will see demand drop for oil and for, to a lesser extent, for natural gas, only because I think many have to now agree that natural gas is that transition and Canada has a lot of it, if only it could find a way to get it to market. But I think the more fundamental part, I think, for us is to recognize the significance of how you're going to have the trade-off. So you have this, you know, 4 million barrels a day produced uh, at a hundred, you know, $80 a barrel. How do you make up? The loss in revenue. Why? Because the, fed, the federal government, municipal governments, provincial governments cash in about anywhere from 10 to $25 billion, depending on the value of oil and natural gas every year in revenue. So this, this, this narrative that has gone out saying, oh, we, this, with all these subsidies, the fossil fuel industry is, is, is bunk and to a large extent needs to be addressed because frankly, uh, from my perspective, unless we're talking about changing the income tax system and benefits that go to all businesses, if we're going to basically hive off and say one industry shouldn't get it, well, maybe we shouldn't stop with the oil and gas sector. Maybe we should go talk about the aeronautics, the aviation industry in Montreal. But I guess there's a political side to that. I'll put on my old political cap. Good luck with that because you'll lose <laughs> Montreal in a, in a heartbeat. Generally speaking, though, I agree with Tom. There will be that drop. Uh, but even if we were to remove every single vehicle in the world and turn them into, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, zero emission vehicles, uh, you still require a significant amount, significant amount of, uh, of processing of hydrocarbons to make those vehicles a reality. Uh, even when your batteries, even if they're made here, the extraction process or whether they're made in China, worse, uh, you know, you have products that are being made uh, in, in, in environmental conditions that are not sound at all. So I agree with the, the notion that, uh, you know, the third world is saying or the developing world is saying, hey, you've had your good time, it's time for us to do the same. When 1% of the world is consuming or creating one third of all of the uh, emissions, there is an argument to be said about uh, the need for countries like Canada, the United States, the UK. Uh, many of us have done very well to start sharing that. That's, I guess, I, I suspect why India wanted a trillion bucks and didn't get it. 
Uh, Carl, the, the Global Financial Alliance for Zero, and uh, obviously uh, former Bank of Canada Governor Mark Carney announcing that last week during the uh, the beginning of this uh, COP26, $130 trillion committed. Now, that's a big number, but uh, is this more shock and awe, or, or do you see that there's going to, it's actually going to work, it could help reduce climate change? I think we have to remember, I think the figure of $130 trillion is the um, combined uh, collective assets of these companies. So that's not the, the amount that they've committed to any particular goal. And this is all, uh, you talk about aspirational, this is like uber aspirational because this is all a voluntary agreement among companies in many, many different jurisdictions to vague ends. I mean, nobody's going to be uh, looking over their shoulders and seeing what they actually do, how they actually invest their money, what they get out of them, what they get into. Uh, and again, I think it is part of the, um, I think, uh, misguided uh, dream that we can use all these invisible hand of the market, market mechanisms without the intrusion of big brother government uh, to achieve these goals. I, I'm I'm just really dubious of that. I mean, even Mark, just it's it's, it's totemic of, of the difficulties and of the, how problematic it, it is that Mark Carney, as he was taking uh, some kind of stipend from the UN and acting on behalf of the UN, is also an executive of one of the companies that is in itself party to the deal. I mean, imagine having that kind of that kind of. I mean, we wouldn't uh, wouldn't allow a finance minister in Canada to also be a vice president of one of the major banks, and yet there he is brokering an agreement, but also representing and concerned with the narrow self interest of his own company. And these corporations, the financial corporations especially, they're about one thing and one thing only. Is that despite everything else they do, their bottom line and 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 their profits. Just think of individually how often any individual investor may encounter a conversation with their investment counselor where they say, I want to be ethical, I want to be green. And then the investment counselor says, okay, do you want to, do you want to realize half the return or, or almost zero return or maybe lose, lose? Because if you want to realize good returns, you can't tie my hands behind my back and say, and impose these other requirements on me because th then you're going to come back and complain how come my portfolio is not growing and my neighbor's portfolio is growing? So it's a problematic, uh, a problematic idea. Certainly better than nothing, but uh, you know, nothing is nothing. So it's not much better better than much else than nothing. Uh, Eddie, and you you had brought this up earlier when we were talking about coal, and it's uh, about richer countries contributing to poorer countries to help them reduce their emissions and and get their you know their projects underway. Uh, uh, again, we've had that uh, come forward with uh, richer nations saying they are going to uh, to fund that. But can that kind of uh, donation be tracked? Can we see the re results of it? That kind of a thing. Yeah, it, it, it can be tracked, uh, and you know the, there are many ways to do it. But the way it happens in the you know, climate financing mechanisms through the OECD, who's, who has a database to show how much funding Canada delivers to this country and this country. And so, I mean, uh, in the context of this COP, Canada actually put forward $1 billion for the next five years for the first time for just transition efforts. Uh, so there is a way to track it. 
within the OECD moving forward. But I, I want to move back to what uh, Carl was saying, because that is true. G funds and, and this notion about uh, the financial sector uh, coming into um, the COP and announcing climate pledges has is, is problematic for three reasons. The first one is because they bring in the credibility of the financial sector, but it's not all actors that are part of this this commitment. So it's some of them. Uh, it is an important set of assets, but the commitment is actually based much more on net zero pledges where you have not, not too much accountability. To say the least, maybe zero accountability. And their portfolios, some of them that have not committed to taking them out of oil or of um, coal or fossil fuels globally. And so uh, from these two perspectives, uh, this G funds announcement actually um, brings much more uncertainty towards the transition than anything else. And that is why at COP26, G funds got completely, completely blasted by the media and by experts who analyzed these, uh, these commitments and just looked at the loopholes that, that uh, Mark Carney was bringing in through this mechanism. And on one side, Ed, you had G funds announcing 133 millions in asset for, uh, sorry, trillions in asset for net zero. And on the other side, you had a climate finance announcement, the 100 billion commitment through the UNFCCC, which remains unmet. So it is a very difficult um, a story of, of you know, uh, lack of accountability, which doesn't actually help a country like Canada defend its, its, its uh, performance as a contributor to uh, climate finance to help countries transition away from fossil fuels. Tom, uh, another pledge was uh, halting deforestation. Uh, we saw that uh, before in Paris and, and countries have missed those targets. Uh, I'm wondering, is there a credibility act between actions and words? Well, yeah, absolutely. There's a huge credibility gap. So, uh, you know, if you look at the analysis of the pledges to date, of the policies in place to date, we're warming to 2.7 degrees. Uh, the targets that were submitted were warming to 2.1 degrees. Uh, so even if we met those targets, which we were unlikely to do, we're still way over, way over where we're in Paris. And, I, you know, it's, it's interesting to return to Canada for a moment because Canada in many ways is a microcosm, is a test case. Uh, because of being a wealthy country uh, with the technology and a huge public support for taking action to address climate change, if we can't do it here, uh, boy, we're in rough shape. So if you take a look at Canada, our commitments, now we've committed to a 40 to 45% reduction by 2030, net zero by 2050. And let's look behind those. There's no plan for the 2050 net zero. Uh, the plans we have in place are, are not going to achieve the 40 to 45 percent. Uh, and then we look at things like uh, our zero emission vehicle targets. There's no legal mechanism in place to achieve that 100 percent ZEV target by uh, 2035. There's no targets for heavy duty vehicles in place. Um, we, we, uh, so, so, so on a number of scores, we, we have not in Canada have a plan in place to achieve the targets that we've submitted to uh to to cop 26 and so if canada can't do it uh if we've had trouble meeting our targets and and we certainly have uh we our ambitions have, have not gone down despite all of the all of the rhetoric uh and we don't have plans in place to achieve the targets we've set uh boy it's uh we've got a lot of work to do ed and we've got to roll up our sleeves and get at it quickly 
Well, that's the uh, the thing I'm kind of wondering about. You, you, you talk about all these things, uh, or at least uh, the candidate, candidate is talking about all these things they want to do. But, you know, if you're going to lay out a target, you would think you'd have a, pra- you know, a plan to get to there as opposed to, you know, just make a promise and then try and put it together later. Dan, I, you think that's part of the, the credibility gap too? Yeah, I'm with Tom on this. I think that is the challenge. Uh, you need to demonstrate, and I think we've seen this happen time and time again, where a pledge is made before the actual numbers are out there. And I, I think the government has uh, a significant amount of work ahead of itself to try to make those numbers square to reach those targets. Uh, look, uh, there's this whole thing we call uh, in, in the process, Carl knows this better than I do, when you pass legislation, you have ideas you have uh, the RIAS, the, uh, the responsibility, or the, not the responsibility, but the uh, uh, when you pass and promulgate laws, you want to make sure that there's a regulatory analysis, impact analysis on every one of the legislation you're passing. You have to look at that cost benefit uh, analysis. Not only is what Tom's saying correct, because we don't have a plan, I don't think Canadians have really felt what that plan might be in terms of the totality of uh, the displacement of jobs. We know it's going to happen in the oil sector. We know that they're could be a drop, a substantial drop, uh, as I've mentioned earlier, in, in federal government, provincial and municipal government uh, uh, funding. We also know that it's going to take a lot more creative funding from where it's going to come, I don't know, in order to bring about these new technologies, if in fact they are to exist and to be able to displace anytime soon. Numbers of $2 trillion to uh, realize net zero by 2050 is not a small number. And so I think uh, where we have to, the government has to come up with a credible, achievable, realistic plan, uh, and it has to demonstrate uh, and back up what it has said at uh, Glasgow. Otherwise, it's uh, unfortunately, uh, for lack of a better expression, a lot of hot air. Uh, Well, folks, uh, a great discussion once again on COP26. Our guest today on Unpublished TV, Carl Nirenberg, Parliament Hill reporter with Rabble. Dr. Thomas Gunton is professor and founding director of the Resource and Environmental Planning Program at Simon Fraser University. Dan McTagg is the president for Canadians for Affordable Energy. And Eddie Perez is the International Climate Diplomacy Manager at Climate Action Network Canada. Coming up on the next Unpublished TV, why so much angst over mandatory vaccines for healthcare workers. Hope you can join us. Thanks for watching Unpublished TV. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.